The reading this morning comes from Colossians 3, 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When God, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In those you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is now renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Penny and Amelia just kind of stole my thunder there. I love you, Amelia. I love you too. That's pretty much the sermon, but I have a 30-minute version here, and you're going to get it anyway. So, uh, so let, let's uh, pray and ask God's help with the passage. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you for your reminder of who we are and how you have done everything necessary uh, for how you have called us to live. And help us to understand the application of this passage for us as a church. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, back in August, I laid out this sermon series uh, about the church, which we've been calling This Is Us. I selected the appropriate passages and what Sundays each passage would be preached on, either by myself or by Jeremy. Uh, so Colossians 3, 11 to 17 was slated all along for Sunday the 24th of October. It did then bring a smile to my face when Chris and Abby chose this date for their wedding because this was actually the passage that Tara and I had read at our wedding over 31 years ago now. It's a great passage which highlights the traits uh, that are essential for any couple to possess as they seek to build a healthy marriage. However, as we're about to see, 
when Paul wrote these words, his primary focus was not so much on relationships between spouses or friends, but rather relationships in the church, or as Paul puts it here in verse 11, here, here in the church. Paul's addressing how as God's people, we are to relate to each other, especially when life in the church family can get a little challenging. I don't know about any of you, but I was delighted to see my fellow Northern Irishman, Rory McElroy finally get back to his winning ways last weekend on the PGA Golf Tour with his success in the CJ Cup in Las Vegas. I, however, am living proof that not every person from Northern Ireland is an excellent golfer. I know enough about golf to talk you through a great round. I can tell you how straight my drives off the tee are going to be, how I'll pick exactly the right club to land on the green, I can describe the anticipated perfect judgment of the wind, how my putts will be perfectly managed. I can make it all sound perfectly, positively wonderful, but once you put me on the first tee of a golf course, the chances are that I will immediately make a complete hash of it. And if I didn't make a hash of it on my first shot, it's only going to be a matter of time before I do, because the fact is I'm pretty lousy at golf. I can talk a good game, but the reality is rather ugly to watch. And I tell you that because church is not unlike a round of golf. We can describe church life in great detail, how it's all supposed to work, how wonderful it will be. And in some sense, that's what we've been doing through this sermon series. We've looked at the New Testament description of a, of a great church where very different people are united together, where all the commands to love one another and encourage one another and so on are being fulfilled, where everybody plays their part in uh, building the body, as Jeremy laid out for us last week in 1 Corinthians 12. But then we come to the first T, where it's time to do it for real rather than just describe it, and in all honesty, the chances are we'll make something of a mess of it. And even if we don't make a mess of it right away, it will only be a matter of time before we do. In other words, although church is easy to describe, it's not as easy in practice. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it in today's bulletin, quote, church community is hard work, which is why many people love the idea of community more than the experience of community. Even when we have the best of intentions, we, we get it wrong sometimes, don't we? We'll be clumsy in the way that we use our gifts and how we interact with each other. And then because we all still grapple with, with sin, there are times when we don't have the best of intentions and we can be selfish and we can be proud and we can be uncaring and we can be thoughtless. So that when we live together as the church, as God's family, it won't be long before we will say something that we wish we hadn't, or we will do something and then we wish we had done it differently, or we will react to something someone says or does to us and we wish we could change the way we had responded. That while church life can be easy to describe, it's messy right from the first tee. So given this somewhat sobering reality, how are we to respond? Well, we could, of course, just bail on church and give up because it's too hard and we wouldn't be the first to do so. Or even if we stick around, we could sort of lower our expectations and, and uh, you know, keep our distance from one another. 
avoid involvement with each other's lives, so reducing the cost and time and energy, reducing the chance of offending someone or being offended. But the trouble with those approaches is that they all involve the decision to not be the church that Jesus wants us to be. It would mean opting for something that really isn't church at all. And so in our passage today, Paul lays out for us a path for what to do when church just feels too hard, too challenging, too demanding. And here's his big idea. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Love one another in light of who you are as God's loved ones. I'm going to break that down into three parts. First of all, remember who you are. Secondly, love in light of who you are. Thirdly, live in light of who you are. Love one another in light of who you are as God's loved ones. First then, remember who you are, verses 11 to 12. Here, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, for Christ is all and in all. Paul lists all these different groups, ethnically different, economically different, religious background different, groups that were suspicious, even hateful of each other. But he says, not here. Here there is not Greek or Jew. There is not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Elsewhere, Paul puts it slightly differently. He says, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Here he writes, here. You get the sense this letter would have been read to a church, and in a sense, Paul's encouraging everybody to look around, look at the people gathered there. Was he saying that there weren't any cultural differences now among them because they were now Christians? Of course not. Paul continues to use the very categories we see here to refer to different groups throughout his letters. But what he is saying is that in Christ, in this place, those differences do not divide us. They're relegated in significance by Jesus and what he's done. Here, Christ is all and in all. Scott Sauls, who's an author and a Presbyterian pastor in Nashville, was speaking this past Thursday at Ironworks Church in Westchester, where Robbie Schmidtberger, some of you remember Robbie, where he's pastor. And Scott Sauls' topic on Thursday was creating cultures of kindness in a time of outrage. He said a lot of really helpful things in that talk, but here was one of them. He said, if it's easier for someone to guess your politics rather than your religion, then politics has become your religion. Because if anything becomes our religion other than Jesus, then Christ is no longer all and in all for us. But here, Paul says, here in the church, he has to be all. Christ has to be all that ultimately matters for us to be us. Now, given the diversity of this group of people in the Colossian church, what Paul then says about them would have been considered simply scandalous. Paul tells them, no matter what their background, they are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's using here language that's rooted in the Old Testament. Here, for example, is here is what we read in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This assurance was foundational for Israel's ethnic identity. The truth that the Lord had promised their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would make them a great nation, 
was intricately woven into their sense of who they were as a people. And now Paul says to these Colossian Christians that they, in all their diversity, now stood before God with the very same assurance that Israel had had. So that the uncircumcised, you don't have to become circumcised. And the Greek, you don't have to become Jewish. And the barbarian isn't excluded because he fails to conform to some cultural norms or or practices. Because you see, they hadn't chosen God. God had chosen them. And that had made all the difference. They weren't holy because they were special or better than everybody else. They were holy because God had set his love upon them. Their life was now to be grounded in the reality that they were now the undeserving recipients of God's abundant, redeeming love. Paul says, remember who you are. I've mentioned before that there's a grammar to the gospel that if you don't get it, it's going to make it very difficult for you to understand what the Bible's all about. And it's not a very complicated grammar. It's simply this, that the indicative always precedes the imperative. That is, God always tells us, reminds us what he's done for us, who we are because of him, before he ever asks anything of us. And that's true here in Colossians 3. Remember who you are because you are who you are as a result of what God has done for you. The English singer Adele has a new album coming out next month entitled 30. It's already been dubbed her divorce album. Adele gave an interview to Vogue magazine this past week, and the line I saw quoted more than any other over and over again was where she described the new album as a means to explain to her son about, quote, who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. Now, that's a breathtakingly astounding picture of what sociologists call expressive individualism. And while we might rightly lament what Adele articulates here, if we're honest, all of us, all of us have hurt other people in some way to pursue our own happiness. But it was Adele's other description of the album that I found more interesting. She said, I feel like this album is self-destruction, then self-reflection, then sort of self-redemption. I'm guessing all of us can relate in our own lives to episodes of self-destruction and then positively to self-reflection. But the big problem, however, is when we try the self-redemption part, because redemption is not a do-it-yourself enterprise. Redemption, for redemption, you need a real redeemer. You need a savior with a capital S, and that can't be you. There's only one person who can redeem you as you need to be redeemed. The Bible tells us it's Jesus because he's done the ultimate work of redemption, dealing with your deepest sin, your deepest guilt, your deepest shame. He's done that through the cross and resurrection. You see, that's the indicative that's behind God declaring us as his chosen ones, as his holy ones, his beloved ones. That's, always, that's why we've always got to start, before we move on to the imperative, about who we are and what God has done for us and who we are in Christ. That's gospel grammar, indicative before imperative, remember who you are. But from the indicative of who we are in Christ, Paul then moves to the imperative, our second point, love in light of who you are. If we remember that our identity as Christians is first and foremost in Jesus Christ, 
as God's holy ones, uh, as his chosen ones, holy and loved, that's going to change the way we live. It's going to change the way we, we relate to each other. The first part of chapter 3 that we're not particularly focusing on today, but I asked Margaret to read, Paul concentrates on the things we're consequently to get rid of in our lives. And he's, he's really got two lists there. The first list focuses on, on our wrong desires. And then the second list is what Jerry Bridges in one of his books called Respectable Sins. The sins that we shrug our shoulders at and treat as not that important because, well, everybody does them. Sins that Paul highlights here lead to sins of the tongue, gossip and slander and backbiting. Sins of the tongue, which today can also include sins of the fingertips as we type unedifying and slanderous comments in emails and texts and on social media. And Paul says in verses 111, if you're in Christ... If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, those things just don't belong. But in verses 12 and following, Paul then shifts from the things that we should get rid of to the things that we should be adding. So look at verses 12 to 13. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so that you also must forgive. Or if we were to put it in other words, love in light of who you are as God's loved ones. The way Paul describes what love looks like here is in terms of what we should wear. He says, put on then. Some of you may remember uh, about a, a decade ago, the Learning Channel had a show called What Not to Wear. I can't claim to have been a huge fan, but I saw enough of it to be able to tell you it was about fashion. That's, that's about as much as I know, except that the two hosts of the show, uh, or fashionistas, who apparently was what they were called, were Clint uh, Kelly and Stacey London. And the way the show worked was someone would write a letter complaining about the fashion sense or lack thereof of their mother or their sister or a friend. And Clint and Stacey would then intervene and do a couple of things right off the bat. First of all, they'd tell the fashion-challenged individual where she had gone wrong up to this point, what was wrong with her basic wardrobe, and then they would coach her on what she should be wearing. Paul's letter to the Colossians is something of a theological version of what not to wear here. He does for the Colossians spiritually what Clinton Stacy did for these fashion disasters. So he starts with the diagnosis of what was wrong with their initial wardrobe. That's, that's what comes in the first part of Colossians 3, the things they need to get rid of. But now as Christians, in this letter, he tells them they've already received a brand new wardrobe. On the cross, Jesus took the disgusting wardrobe of our pride, our self-righteousness, our self-redemption, and he died to get rid of it. But at the same time, he made an exchange. He gave us his clothing, his robe of perfect righteousness, so that now if we're in Christ, if we're Christians, clothed with his record and not ours, we look absolutely stunning to God. He not only accepts us, he delights in us. He loves us. And Paul now says to the Colossians and to us, what you now need to do is you need to make sure you've got the right accessories with your outfit. Here's what you're to wear as God's chosen and beloved people. 
I've lost count of how many times I've read Colossians, I've preached through it before, I've taught it in Bible studies, but it wasn't actually until this past week when I was reading our new book of the month, here's the plug, The Beautiful Community by Erwin Ince, by reading that, that I realized there's something I'd completely missed about Paul's commands here. Erwin Ince points out in the book that compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness most of those attributes aren't really needed when everything's going great. They're needed when we've made a mess of things right off the first tee. They're needed in the midst of discord. They're needed when there's been controversy and no one's listening to each other. They're needed when you've been hurt by someone in the church, whether they intended to hurt you or not. And in those situations, Paul says, put on compassionate hearts and kindness, and humility, and meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. But as is often the case in the Bible, the challenge here is not trying to understand this list of accessories, but it's actually the putting, of putting them on. Because most of us here, we're not confused as to what it means to show compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. But with each of the attributes here, Paul's really saying, you know the way God has acted towards you? That's how I want you to act towards each other. So as God has poured out his compassion on you, wear compassion. Since God has been so kind to you, be kind to one another. As the Lord forgave you, forgive one another. Paul reminds us that the only way you and I are ever going to be able to forgive consistently in a genuine manner is to keep going back to the cross of Jesus, looking at the cross and saying, Jesus, Jesus, on the cross, I know you paid the entire bill for everything that I owe for my sin. The big sins, the respectable sins. I'm sorry to say I know I'm still adding to the bill, but you've paid for that too. But this thing that she said about me, or that thing that he did to me, the way he treated me, it feels pretty raw. It feels pretty big to me right now. In fact, it really hurts. But I know that my bill that you paid is ridiculously bigger than the size of this comparatively small bill. So Jesus, since you paid everything for me, help me pay down this bill that I'm owed. And you see, it all flows out of the identity. You've got to get the indicative there before the imperative. As God's people, as children of the Father, we're to bear the family resemblance. This is exactly how God has acted towards us with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and meekness and patience and forgiveness. These are the traits of the family. So love in light of who you are as God's loved ones. I had lunch recently with a pastor friend from another part of the country. He's currently serving as a transitional pastor for a church that's looking for a new permanent pastor. He arrived at this church this past January. It's a deeply divided church, primarily with regards to their senior pastor who left the church three years ago. Three years on as he arrived, uh, there was still a faction there at the church who wished that previous pastor was still there and a faction that was just jolly glad to see the, the back of him. 
Now, Pastor and his wife were still uh, living in the area, but they were about to move to another part of the country. And so before they left, my friend, this transitional pastor, asked if he could meet with them to hear their side of the story. And that's what happened. He spent three hours with the pastor and three other hours with his wife as they just poured out their hearts to him. And after that, he went back to the session, to the elders of the church, and he said, you know, I, I get it. I understand how much hurt there has been on both sides because of this conflict. But you know what I think? I think we should bring the pastor and his wife back for an evening celebration of the good things that they brought to this church, where we can thank them and we can bless them and pray for them as they move on in ministry. And that's what they did. It was an evening that took incredible compassion and humility and patience and forgiveness on both sides, but as a result brought an enormous amount of healing. My friend told me that two of the elders refused to attend that evening event. They said, we can't and we won't forgive him. And my friend said to him, then you probably aren't qualified to be elders. I think Paul would add, you need to seriously consider if you're followers of Jesus. Because as we have been forgiven, so God equips us to forgive. Paul wraps up this second point with this command in verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Everything that Paul has told us up to this point fits under this big umbrella of love, or perhaps more accurately, if you remember the Snuggie, under the big Snuggie of love. I have to confess, the, convert, the commercials they used to run for Snuggie always looked to me like a recruiting tape for a cult or people who, people who wanted to dress like Darth Vader. But the attractive thing about the Snuggie, and I say this from firsthand experience, was that as a blanket, it covered everything, but you still could put your hands and arms through it and work and, and move with it on. And that's what Paul says love is and what love does here. Love's the Snuggie that enwraps all these other traits, and as it does so, it binds us together perfectly. This love enables God's people, holy and loved by him, to be tender towards one another, even in the most trying of times where you've messed it up right from the first tee. Love in light of who you are. And that brings us thirdly and lastly to live in light of who you are, verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 15, that first verse, is one of those verses that often gets taken out of context so that we think Paul is talking here about decision-making, about guidance, the idea being that once you have a peace in your heart about a particular decision, that that's a sign from the Lord that it's his will. Now, that may be or may not be, but it's not what fits with the flow of the passage here. Because Paul has been describing love as that which binds together the members of the community into greater unity. And now he tells us to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, the peace, he says, to which indeed you were called in one body. He's still talking about the unity of the church here. Paul's concern 
is with the Colossians' corporate life together, how they attain unity, how they live in peace with each other. And the way he says that will happen is to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. So what, what does he actually mean by that? What's that look like? Paul literally says here, let the peace, of Christ, peace that Christ has achieved be the umpire in your hearts. So imagine you're having a conflict with someone else in the church. The two of you sit down to talk about it. But before you talk about the conflict, uh, you look to the umpire. And the umpire, Paul says, is the peace that Christ has achieved. And specifically, you look again to the cross, because at the cross, Paul has already told us in other letters, particularly Ephesians, that the hostility between God and us was dealt with and paid for. Christ has achieved peace there. He achieved reconciliation there. And that piece of Christ is now the umpire for every other conflict you have. So that as you sit with this other person with whom you're in conflict, before you say a word, you look to the umpire, you look to the cross, the peace that Christ has accomplished, because that's the umpire of this game that you're in right now. And as you look to the umpire, you think to yourself, you know what, I don't really need to play this game. And you say to the other person, you know what, because of what Jesus has done for me, I don't want to let this conflict continue. Let's make peace. And there's peace. So as we live in light of who we are, we let peace rule in our hearts. And secondly, to help equip ourselves to let that peace rule, we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. In other words, we keep going back to the gospel. We keep preaching the gospel to ourselves and to one another. We keep going back to the scripture to be reminded of what? To be reminded of who we are, our identity, and to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And that equips us then, Paul says, to disciple one another in helping one another know what to wear, what not to wear. And then interestingly, he says that word ministry to one another leads to two other things. First, it leads to worship. That is, the word of Christ dwells in us richly as we rehearse together what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, our hearts are stirred to worship him. And he says, secondly, it leads to gratitude, where we're brought back again to who we are in Christ and what he's done for us. And so we just can't say thank you enough to God for the gospel, and that spurs us on to keep living for him. It's often occurred to me when reading this chapter that this wouldn't be a bad name for a church here, here church. And people would ask, what on earth does that name mean? And we'd quote Colossians 3.11 to them with these great last words, here, Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all that matters here. Now, we may not have the name, but I hope we're growing more and more into a here church here. We may not have the diversity that existed in Colossae, but we come from different backgrounds, and we certainly have different perspectives here in our body. But as we've said all through this series, one of the most powerful witnesses to our wider community that we can make is to demonstrate that whatever our differences, Christ is really all that matters here. And so to demonstrate that, Paul says, be committed to putting off all that doesn't belong to your new identity in Christ. Be committed to putting on all that does belong, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience 
and forgiveness. We're committed to living in light of who we are in Christ. We're committed to love in light of who we are as God's loved ones here, right here, because this is us. Let's pray. Father, there's not one person here in this sanctuary this morning who doesn't know how hard this is, who doesn't know how hard it is to be reconciled to someone who has hurt us, how hard it is to show kindness to those who have have grieved us, how hard it is to forgive other people. And yet you don't ask us to do anything that you haven't equipped us to do. Help us to keep looking at the indicative, to keep looking at who you are, what you have done for us, who you have made us in Christ, so that our actions, our words, our deeds, everything flows out of that. And that as a result, we would be this shining light of the glory and the goodness and the love of God to this community around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.